All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Boombastic Cast. Woo! Yeah! Don't catch no sweet chin music if you got issue uh, with the Boombastic Cast. Shawn Michaels put you to sleep, lay you down, Gentile, nicely like, put a pillow under your head, you know what I mean? Um, welcome on back to the Boombastic Cast. We've got a great guest for you this evening, you know what I mean? The great Mark Scheffler's in the building. Doing it big. You might know Mark from uh, playing Junior in Wes Craven's Last House on the Left, which, as I've said numerous times in life and maybe on the show, you know, Last House on the Left is a movie that when I caught that movie for the first time, it rocked my mind. It was like it was some heavy duty shit. You know what I mean? Um, For anybody that hasn't seen it out there, go see it. Um, you're missing out. Super psychological horror. Probably some of the best of psychological horror. I guess if you if you were to put together a list, it would definitely be in the top three, maybe even numero uno on psychological horror. Uh, I equate it often to Clockwork Orange with craziness. Uh, the wrong person sees it. I'll get into it in the episode. So I won't br- talk about that shit now. Alexander, how you doing over there? I'm doing good. Yeah, I mean... Uh... Last House on the Left, that is one of those movies that you put in in a special category. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a visual film. When you see it, 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 it brings out a lot of deep, dark feelings. And none of those feelings are good. But you no gotta, ghoul. Give, no ghoul. You got, you gotta give credit to all filmmakers that are willing to go into the uh, the uh, place where angels fear to tread, and uh, last house on the left is a perfect example of that. And um, another thing about uh, Mark is uh, he's also a writer and a comedian. He's done a lot of other stuff too, and uh, he's written for a lot of different TV shows. So this guy is uh, multi talented and 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 uh, definitely has a lot of a uh, lot of uh, hidden talents. Hell yeah. Harry and the Henderson, Child's in Charge, Who's the Boss? You know, I got down with some Harry and the Hendersons pretty heavy. Who's the Boss? Who hasn't seen Who's the Boss? You know what I mean? And of course, Charles in Charge. I want to tell everybody a very personal thing out there. You know, when Matt Fisher was a... Yeah, that's right. The co-host of the Boom Bastard cast, Matt Fisher, when he was a youngin', a teenager, you know... He, Charles in Charge was such a big deal to him that his cousin Carl was given the nickname Carl's in Charge. That's how big that was, you know what I mean? So shout out Carl Baranzo and uh, shout out Charles in Charge. Um, we can't be affiliated with the gentleman who stars in it because he's he's catching heat all the time. Yeah. We don't want to catch that heat, dude. The Fonz ain't here to save us, you know what I mean? Um, but we'll, you know, we're about to kick into some serious shit here because this is some good times about to be had. Um, you know, the stand, we always love getting into the stand up, uh, eras of people's lives in the, in the early, you know, in the seventies and the eighties, you know what I mean? The nineties even, but the golden era for comedy, you know what I mean? Uh, one of my faves of all time. You know what I mean? I know where we're going to kick in. going to hear some good stories like that. I know the Hawkman going to have some Robin stories that he gets down with. You know what I mean? Some Wally, Wally Matthau stories he gets down with. We might have to 
sing a song before uh, we go in. And as we put our hands to our forehead, salute style, we tell everybody, it's been fun knowing ya when we did it done big. Now the episode starts. We talked to Krug's kid. Well, thanks for having me. Anytime, man. Anytime, anytime. How you how you doing over there? Um, you know, my wife and I just got back from a ten week trip uh, to South America, so we're now reintegrating ourselves in, into our house and kind of getting back to that. And I'm back writing my book. I've been working on a book for a little while. Awesome. So I'm now kind of back worrying until my internet went out and then I'm fucked. And so now I just uh, chilled out for the weekend and that, that's about it. I relate to the internet thing. And I wanted to say this on the camera because last weekend I lost the internet and uh, I had to cancel a few shows, unfortunately. And I don't, I, th- I think those people thought that I was being lazy or something. So I just, <laughs> no, I, it's, I, a, <laughs> it's, it's like astounding how dependent. Yeah. We, we become on this thing that nobody knows where it is, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> we just know that it is, but no, like no one's, you know, it's like 1500, uh, uh, Commonwealth Avenue. No, that's not it. Well, where, where is this internet located? Well, it really doesn't have a place. It's kind of like the universe. It doesn't have an address, but it's, we all take it to faith that it's there and that we know it's there because when it isn't there, we're fucked. Right. <laughs> it's like that Willy Wonka thing where it's above your head in a million pieces. That's what yeah. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> so we thank you for being on the show. This has been a long time coming. Well, thank you for having me again. Anytime, man. Anytime. So we usually like to kick off where it all started. You know what I mean? I know you, you were a theater guy. When did you kind of catch the bug for acting? Oh, I, I can lay that out like in very specific detail. You see that picture behind me? Yeah. That I'm pointing to? Okay. Uh, let me, I'll, I'll just take you guys up and show it to you. All right. Um, Let's see here. I have to do I have to turn the camera around? I guess I did. Might have to. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. So that's me. And this when is I was, my, that's me when I was ten years old. Yeah. With the with the three stooges. So here's the here's the four one one behind that. Um my father was a kind of uh salesman guy. And uh, in the run-up to my 10th birthday, while we were having lunch one day, he said to me, uh, hey, listen, uh, you're going to be 10. You made it like a decade. You got a new decade uh, coming up. Uh, uh, you're, you're a boy now at 10. But when this decade is over, you'll be a man. You know, so this is a really important decade. So let's kick it off right. Let's kick it off right. What would you like for your birthday? Not some regular gift. Just, you know, just tell me what you want. So being a child, uh, a young man of, of my era, I looked at my father and I said, oh, that's easy. I want the three And he looked at, my dad looked at me and said, that, well, look, 
I can't 100% promise that I can get him, but I can 100% promise that I'll try. And he got him. They were doing a nightclub gig, two-week gig at, at the Holiday House outside of Pittsburgh where I grew up to me when he found out. And he said, he called a friend of his. So uh, uh, my dad came to me and said, look, here's the deal. I can get him for you, but it's not going to be on your birthday. It would have to be the following January from September when my birthday is. And he said, if you're okay with that, I'll book it. So I said, yeah, sure. You know, I don't care. Three months after my birthday, what do I care? So he did. And he he had a party. He threw a party at this nightclub in the afternoon, a matinee. And uh, uh, my about 60 friends and family and then friends of friends and family who couldn't believe that some guy hired three stooges to perform at their son's 10th birthday party. So so um, halfway through the show, midway through the show, Mo stops the show, looks out at everybody in the audience, and he says, folks, we're all here to celebrate Mark's 10th birthday. Where's Mark? And, uh, you know, I raised my hand, and he said, oh, happy birthday, Mark. And then Larry and Curly Joe DeRita, happy birthday, Mark. And uh, he, he said something like, we understand you're a huge fan of ours. And, you know, and I did what 10-year-old kids would do, right, in that situation. And uh, he said, Mo looks at me and says, why don't you come up on the stage with us? <laughs> I looked at my dad, and my dad kind of leaned over and whispered, Get your ass up on the stage. <laughs> and I went, uh, and there I was on a stage. They get handed me a microphone. I couldn't see shit because, you know, I'm 10 years old and there's stage lights in my eyes and I didn't know how to like look away from them. Uh, and um, I don't know what kicked it off, but suddenly I started interacting with them you know, doing their shit, right? Like, you know, Mo Larry to cheese, Mo Larry to cheese, uh, you know, slow, slowly I turn step by step, Niagara Falls, right? And Mo was cracking up. He stops it. He puts his hand on my head and he says, I dub you the fourth stooge. <laughs> and my friends and their friends, whoa, fuck man, boom. Uh, and so I, I remember, you know, obviously that the event, but I remember feeling when everybody started like applauding and screaming, I remember feeling this kind of uh, morphine-like wave of, of warmth come over me, right? Yeah. You ever had morphine? You ever been in an accident and have morphine? It, oh. it kind of, yeah, they give it to you and they give it to you in your arm. But the, the warm feeling starts at the bottom of your feet <laughs> and works its way up through your body until your head, you know, just goes, whoa. <laughs> and that's why, yeah, well, no, that's why people, you know, that spend, you know, weeks in those opium dens because, well, you know, it's <laughs> anyway. So, um, I, I'm, I look back and I say to myself, cause I remember thinking, I got to get more of this. This feels really good. So that's the day I believe, uh, you know, I'm, 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 I look back and if I had to say, you know, even bet, that's the day when I decided, you know, that, that this is where I belong. I, I felt so like comfortable. Yeah. You know, on the, on the, you know, I, and of course, since I'm my own favorite subject, <laughs> I just, I just love being the center of attention in that moment. You know, it was like, uh, it was narcotic. 
Yeah. Was, yeah, I want I want this. This is fun. That's so, yeah. That's it, man. That's where it happened. I could imagine dude getting on stage with the Stooges, you know what I mean? Oh no, it was like I I was the the equivalent of a star football player in school for like the oh, next sure. two and a half months. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and then of course I would then stand and hold court on the playground instead of throwing balls around I was throwing lines around you know I I just from that moment on like aimed myself at my career I just I just fucking aimed myself at it yeah well when when Mo gives you the golden touch and says it's time for you to perform as well you got yeah you know what I mean that's what it is yeah no it was just it was just like the most empowering experience not just you know it was it it was on the fan level an extraordinary experience yeah. but beneath that for me personally it was the spark that ignited my life you know so it was it it was amazing for me yeah I know. You, so, when, with you, when you were getting like the, into the comedy aspect of it, there, like, oh, get thrown around jokes and stuff. I know. I thought comedy came in a little later. Did comedy come in before Last House, or did comedy oh, come yeah. way Everything before? Okay. Sure. Yeah, because when I got Last House, I was in New York. I was doing stand up, and I had just come. I had just come out of uh, a gig working for a, a well known comedian back then, a guy named London Lee, who. Uh, whose uh, uh, act was predicated on the fact that he was from a very, he was like Jewish Trumps, right? Only nice yeah. people. They were much nicer, yeah. you know, but that, that kind of like uh, self-made money, hundreds of millions of dollars. And I was his roadmate. I met him when I was the stage manager of the Raleigh in South Fallsburg uh, in the Catskill mountains, a place I had gone to, to begin my career right after I dropped out of college. So I had done, uh, I, I went, progressed with London from being his road manager. I drove his car. I ran errands. Uh, you know, I did all that schleppy shit. Yeah. And then I, I, I had written a couple of jokes that I thought would work, and I gave them to him, and he did them one night on stage, and they killed. And then I wrote a few more jokes, and they killed. And soon I was, you know, I, I was writing jokes. I had met through him. The two writers that comedy writers that he worked with, uh, Jules Klein, who's who was known professionally as J.K., and a guy named Sherry Clark, and these two guys couldn't have been more opposite. One was uh, Sherry Clark was this kind of up, preppy kind of Buck Henryish mm-hmm. uh, writer, you know, very 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 non neurotic, very just kind of normal. Mm-hmm. And the other guy, J.K., was this extraordinarily large uh, older man who had a toupee that kind of always sat like this on his head. He could never get the part. The part was like coming across his head and, and he would ride up to the mountains with us. He was this massive, like a Jewish Buddha looking guy. And uh, uh, he, he, he'd be in the back of the car, Lincoln with his hand clutching his chest going London, London, I'm having chest pains here. I'm having chest pains. We got to stop. We got to stop. Oh, boy. London, we got to stop for a piece of layer cake. I'm having chest pains. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, so so I kind of 
whatever innate ability I had, I was I was in a situation where I was looking at jokes written down on pages. Now I was looking at you know material that someone had purchased from a real writer, and I could I could have a matrix in my head. So I stayed with London for about a year. Did at least 150 club dates up in the Catskill Mountains and in around New York, mm. uh, uh, Connecticut, and uh, Pennsylvania. And then ended my gig with him doing two weeks at the Copacabana. Not so bad, right? I go from I go from dropping out of college to standing on stage with a microphone in my hand doing stand-up at the Copacabana in two year, less than two years. So, you know... Then I got a manager after I left London, went out on my own and I got it. I can't even remember how I got this guy, but Dick Towers was my manager. And, um, he, he, he worked in the firm that handled, uh, uh Tom Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck at the time. So they were in New York, a very well situated personal management firm for talent. Right. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and Dick was my, my, my contact, my guy. And he was terrific. He was just, you know, just a wonderful man. And we stayed friends through the years. And he, um, he actually was in Last House. He played Dr. Collingwood and, and, and under the name of Gaylord St. James. Yeah. But he was, yeah, but he was, uh, oh, he's a wonderful guy. And I'm, I'm still friends with his daughter. She lives out here. And, and so I got Last House and then everything really changed. You know, it was, wow, it was pretty interesting. <laughs> I, you know, the comedian, uh, the upcoming of the comedian, I love those stories. It's a lot, it's like from that era, I think, because even like in the music world, when you hit, talk to people, there's a lot of that where you kind of go into it and you kind of help out that artist, you know, do whatever they kind of needed. That's your, that's your yeah. learning the ropes and break. And I don't know if that's the, in comedy nowadays, you think it's that, I don't think it's that way anymore. I think people well, are way too protective of like their, yeah. their thing, you know what I mean? I, I think a lot of when I started, let's go back to the Catskills and then we'll move forward in time. Yeah. When I started, uh, uh, that area was a training ground, right? Like I wasn't the only person who, uh, who went there to yeah. learn, right? Like do you guys know who Bob Morton is. Not off uh, the top. Okay. Bob Morton was, was the executive producer of uh, David Letterman's Late Night Show. Okay. okay. So he and I are pals, and, and uh, uh, we were talking one day on Facebook. So uh, uh, he said to me, uh, you know, you're a, you were a legend at the Raleigh. And, and I laughed. And I, did was, and he said, I, I said, really? Why? He said, well, I moved into your room at the Raleigh after you. And I said, yeah. He said, and everybody was talking about this guy who was the stage manager who got a job with London Lee. And now he's in New York doing stand. I mean, was, he said, you were a legend. And, and I said, well, how do you know you moved into my room? He said, because you forgot your autographed picture of Don Rickles. <laughs> and, <laughs> And I said, I did. He said, yeah. He said, I moved in and there was a picture from Don Rickles. It says to Mark, you know, you, you know, some, something about you being a dummy. You're cute, yeah, but yeah. you're a dummy. Like some <laughs> nonsense. He said, love Don. Right. And, and uh, I said, wow. 
And he said, you're Mark M-A-R-C, right? And I said, yeah. And he said, you were the stage manager at the Raleigh? He said, yeah. I said, yeah. He said, well, I had your picture. <laughs> and so, you know, you just, it's a weird thing. I, you know, we're talking, and, but you learn, like I saw every comedian who worked the Catskill Mountains during the 1969. I saw, here, here I'll tell you a story. Yeah. I saw for the first time in my life, the birth of a joke. Okay. Yeah. Like the day before this joke didn't exist. Now this joke exists. Yeah. So it was the night of the moon landing in 1969. And, uh, I want to say the comedian on, on the show that night was Freddie Roman, because every time I tell the story, Freddie comes to mind. He was wonderful. You know, Freddie Roman is yeah, yeah. name. Yeah. He's on. He's, he, yeah. Okay. In his, in his day, he was an extraordinary tactician and comedian. He was just brilliant on stage. So, you know, it's the night of the moon landing. Ladies and gentlemen, comedy star of our show, Freddie Roman. He walks out and I'm on the spot, right? I'm on the spotlight. That was one of the things I had to do as stage manager. So I'm following him and he comes, he comes downstage center. He says, a big round of applause for the people who landed America on the moon. What a country. Audience goes nuts, right? Yeah. And he said, he said, what a night. How, how amazing it is that we here in the United States, we are the ones who are, who, who got to the moon first. Applause, 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 applause. And then he says, you know, ladies and gentlemen, I was walking to the show tonight thinking about this, how amazing and how astounding this is that we're here on this planet and 286,000 miles away, Americans are walking on the moon. I pass an old Jewish man standing by the elevators who's dancing and turning circles and saying to himself, tonight's the night. Tonight's the night. I, I got curious. So I walked over to him and I said, sir, if you don't mind me asking, why are you so happy? And why are you screaming tonight's the night? And he looked at me and said, young fella, 47 years ago, I married my Rachel. And on our wedding night, I look at her and I said, Rachel, we just got married. We said vows. We're going to be with each other till death do us part. Please, darling, please. Give the schmeckle a little kiss. <laughs> and she looked at me and said, When there's a man on the moon, tonight's the night. Tonight's the night. <laughs> so... That joke didn't exist. Like, I'd never heard that before. And then this thing in the happened. And then this happened. The joke happened. Yeah. And I was, I was so taken with the lesson of that, right? Yeah. Not, to, not just that it was, I think it was a fucking great joke, but that this is where jokes come from. And this is where I should look. And, and it aimed, it kind of opened me up. To, to look at the world more broadly for yeah. jokes. So, you know, I, I, so I don't know if those experiences 
are available. Like when I started at the comedy store in uh, uh, the spring of 76, I got there and Robin got there and Argus Hamilton and uh, uh, well, Tom Dreesen and, and Jimmy Walker. They'd already been there and Gabe Kaplan. Was, but we, this was, this was like the learning experience. This was, you know, it was postgraduate work, man. It, you know, and people came and went. The, 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 for every one of us whose name appears on the wall, and my name's been up there for 40 some years, for every one of us whose name is up on the wall, there might have been 300 people who, you know, came and went. Yeah. So, so I'm not sure. I think that what happens today, because I, I, I still do stand up every now and then when I get the urge and I go places where I, I know I can get on. And, uh, uh, I see, I, I spend some time at the store every now and then because I just kind of like touched my roots. And, uh, I'm not sure that, that younger comedians are getting the, the experience, the learning experience because everybody's going for that, you know, Netflix special that, you know, Hulu special, everybody, you know, there's this golden fleece that it seems accessible. Right. Mm-hmm. And I've seen some of those. And frankly, they, the, the people who they're, they're there and they're, they're doing it, but they're not ready yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and doesn't mean they never will be, but sometimes it's best to, you know, hone your craft and hone your material a few years. Cause if it's really good material, it will only get better. Yeah. So, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm just, sounds like I'm pontificating, but no. I, I, I do, I do come from a certain experiential point of view. So, you know, uh, iconic, you know, and, it's a, it's, it's a great era. Was Mitzi Shore running the comedy store? Oh yeah. At yeah, that yeah, point. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. For the yeah, divorce. Yeah. Mitzi, yeah. Mitzi made me a regular on my third night of Monday nights. Cause I, I, I have a, I've had a kind of an unusual career in, in a couple of respects. And, and that is that, um, I never had like the struggle coming to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. I never, I sold the first I ever wrote from backies and that's what moved me to LA. So when I landed, in 1976 to move here, I had what I want to do. You, you know, pilot season's coming up. We'll send you around for writing work. But what else do you want to do? And I told him about stand-up, and they're the ones who got me in. It's an, no, no reason she should have. Uh, but she did accommodate them in, in – pardon me? Oh, I, saw, I agreed. I oh. said, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, so uh, what happened was – she made an accommodation to William Morris. Was she gave me a time on Monday nights because it's you know it's he doesn't have to stand in line, but I still want to you know I still I said okay to that. So um, I started hanging out at the store. You know I was able to go in there and just say you know I'm doing a sh- show here in a few weeks, doing a set, whatever. So they would let me in, 
And, and the first night I was there sitting in the audience to watch not only the performers, but the audience, I saw Steve Bluestein and Tim Thomerson on the same show. And I about quit. I said, nah, I can't do this shit. <laughs> These guys are, I, you know, because keep in mind, I, I had just come from back East and I was doing Catskill mountain stuff and it just was funny there, but I don't think I said to myself, this shit isn't going to work here. It's just not. So I kept the, the gig and I, I wrote a brand new five minutes. So I went on the first time and I did it and it was okay. You know, was respectable. Uh, got rewrote, got invited back the next week, uh, rewrote, did some stuff, punched up, uh, went back second time, much better. Uh, everything worked, not where I wanted it, but worked. Third time I go next week, three weeks, Mitzi is seated in her booth. She's there to showcase somebody else, right? Yeah. And over over the, the time that I'd been hanging out there, I found a way to like get in her radar, right? And just get in her sight line. Then one time I introduced myself, you know, and she's I know who you are. And and well, nice to meet you. And Mitzi was the kind of person that I mean she was a little woman. She was tiny, like you know, see this pencil? This yeah. pencil is fat. It's fat compared to Mitzi. <laughs> and and um but she was the kind of person, if she, if you saw her walking through the club, uh, uh, if you went to Bob to say hello to her, you were interrupting her on another mission. This, she was an amazing, amazingly focused and brilliant, uh, uh, club runner. And, and, you know, she and Bud Friedman both are responsible for, uh, the comedy scene in, yeah. in LA. So she was seated in her booth there to see somebody else. And I had like a 10.30 time spot, prime time. I mean, you couldn't get better than that. The couple of comedians on in front of me did really well, which is what you want. You don't want the audience in the toilet when you get up on stage. You know, that's a common misconception that you want to root for them to do badly in front of you. No, no, no. You want them to do really well in front of you. You know, not like Robin Williams well, which sucks the oxygen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, uh, but, but. You want them up there. So I got that and I went up on stage and did about six minutes and I squeezed every fucking laugh out of that six minutes. There was nothing. There was like sand on the stage when I was finished. It was just dry. It was nothing left. So I walked off to, to uh, a huge applause and I saw Mitzi in her booth and I, I said to her, I walked over and I said, well, fuck it. I have nothing to lose. Right. So I walked over to her. I said, Hey, does it have to get better than that? <laughs> and she looked at me and took a beat and said, all right, Mark, call in for spots. And that's how I became a regular, you know, and it, it you know, it's, it's like timing and not being afraid to like take the bull by the horns because, you know, that old saying fortune favors the brave is, uh, is quite true. Yeah. Did they ever write a book on Mitzi? I'd love to read a book on her. You know, she's been a character, a referred to character sure, in, yeah. in other stories. I don't know if anyone's ever, if there's a, like a dedicated Mitzi book. I've never seen it and I probably would have seen it. Yeah. It, uh, you know. Rest in peace. I, I, she passed I, away like a year ago, right? Oh, no. It's a little more than, I think like oh, two really? or three years ago. Yeah. yeah. I, I have to look. I, I was at her memorial at the store. So, um, 
she was a character, you know, she was, uh, she was tough, yeah. but smart, you know, just always knew what she wanted, knew what she didn't like. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, she, she oh, yeah. didn't like, she didn't like comedians with guitars. She didn't like, except for Lenny Schultz and, and Gallagher. She really didn't like prop comics and yeah. Gary Muldeer. She loved, but yeah, she just, why can't they just stand there and talk? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. I like the gimmick sometimes. You know, that's one thing that kind of lacks in comedy nowadays is you don't see really colorful gimmicks. Everybody's kind of being themselves, which is good, but like, I like a little ar- array of things, you know? Yeah, I do. When I, when I, I when I go on stage, I told you I do stand up, right? Yeah. But I don't, I don't go on as myself. I go on as I perform as as that character. I like that. Yeah, yeah. it's a co- combination of my maternal grandfather and the rabbi of the synagogue that my grandparents belong to. And um, I go, and, and his character is that he's a retired kosher caterer and always wanted to be a comedian. So now he's doing it. And... Uh, I do, I do shows every now and then when I kind of like when I feel like it or when I'm, I'm not busy doing something else yeah. and I, get, I have a ton of material and it's, it's great. I get to tickle myself and tickle the audience and then I'm back writing, you know, and then I'm back in my uh, safe zone. Yeah. So. I dig that. Uh, I know, I know you just said where the influences come from. Do you remember when you sparked off the idea to kind of mash them up and make that, make that the character? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I I I was um, in 2015. I was in a really bad accident. I got hit by a car as a pedestrian, mm. and and just like really fucked up, man. I had broken bones all over, and you know, just one of these horrible experiences. But but so so in my recovery, uh, I would one one of the things that made made me feel good mentally which kind of translated into making me feel good physically was i i was remembering my stand-up days you know for some reason i didn't consciously say hey let's think about stand-up it's just as my mind you know when you're laying there and you really can't fucking move because you know to blink it hurts uh uh your mind you know takes a, a much larger role in your daily activity <laughs> you know <laughs> so uh i i would think I would like just mind wander, you know, like I had a house in Laurel Canyon at, at the bottom of the hill on the Hollywood side. And every morning I get up, I smoke a joint, I walk down to Schwab's pharmacy and I have breakfast with Johnny Dark and Murray Langston and Steve Landisberg and a couple of other guys, Gary Owens, and uh, walk back to my house, smoke another joint, take a nap, get up, make something to eat, take a nap. Get up, smoke a joint, go to the comedy store, do a set, go to the improv, meet somebody, maybe not meet somebody, hang out till closing, come back, crash out, and wake up and start the whole same thing all over again. Yeah. You know, and, and remember that I'm hanging out with Robin Williams and Jay Leno and Letterman and and Michael Keaton and I mean this is this is the crowd I'm running with, yeah. right? And and. I would, you know, I would just think about shit that we did, you know, meals that we had and, you know, stage experiences and 
couple of Robin stories that, that, you know, I was involved in. And, I know. And it was just, yeah. No, please I go ahead. Say, I know this gentleman over to, to my, to my left, at least is a gigantic Robin Williams fan. Loves the man. I, I, I think, I think everyone, I mean, I don't think there's a single person who cannot love. Robin. Yeah. Okay. Because, uh, yeah, yeah. Keep talking. Yeah. He, he just, I mean, it's it's sad that you know he he suffered with depression and all that because he yeah. helped so many who were you know depressed and had issues. He was uh, with it with his humor. Robin was an extraordinarily decent human being. Uh, he, he was Robin was a good guy. I, I you he's a good guy. universally kind of, loved for sure. You know, everybody, I remember after he passed, there was this video that he sent to a fan that was like battling cancer and it was all like so hopeful. It made, I get goosebumps just thinking about the video now because it was like, what a dude, like to be going through that much yourself and to still be able to bring hope. That's kind so of you the, guys. Yeah. No, go ahead, please. I'll just say that's kind of the beauty of laughter. I was going to comment earlier when you were talking about thinking of comedy. It's like the mo- one of the most rewarding things is probably that laughter. Because, I mean, I believe, you know, laughter is hailing. It, it can it hails, you know what I mean? Yeah, so, laughter is the best medicine. Yeah. So you guys know what residuals are, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, when what's the date of this? Oh, yeah. In March, this check is dated March 31st, 2021. I get them. I don't get a lot anymore. I used to get like a ton, but I don't get a lot anymore. But in my mailbox was this check. See this check? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What, what does that say? Is that not what the amount? Yeah, no, not the amount. What does that say? That's Robin. Robin Williams DVD. Oh, so, hell yeah. Yeah. So, so he was here. I'll tell you Robin's story. One night, I'm at the Sunset Comedy Store. Yeah. About 11.30, quarter to 12. And I see Robin, and he's like running around, turning circles, like nervous. He didn't get nervous before he went up on stage. Mm. And, he, and he wasn't on the show. He had already done the show. I said, what's wrong? What are you, what are you doing? He said, ah, I have a spot in Westwood in a half hour. And... Um, I lent my car to somebody and I, I, I'm going to, I'm not going to make it. I said, well, I'll take you. So we get in my car, we go to Westwood comedy store, about 20 minutes away. And, um, he, we walk in the club and there are three people sitting in the audience. It's like 1230 or something. Three people are sitting in the audience. Robin goes up on the stage does exactly the same show, if not better, for those three people than he could have or would have done if the place was standing room only, right? So we're getting back in my car to go back over to uh, Sunset. I looked at him. I said, what a fucking amazing show. And he, he was very shy at times and very humble about shit, you know, and he just looked at me and said, oh, thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you. And I said, no, not not that you could do a good show. Everybody fucking knows that. I said that you did the same or better show for those three people than if there were 300 people in there. And in 
what I can only describe is the most innocent, waifish, like non-heavy philosophical manner. He just quipped to me, yeah, well, you got to. Yeah. Just like that. And I went, bam, lesson learned. You know, I mean, it was just, it was just an amazing moment. He, of course you do that. Why wouldn't you do that? I mean, he, he was, Robin was the purest natural performer I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. And I met a lot, I met a lot of people. He was the purest. He was pure performing energy, that guy. Yeah. You know, and, when he, when I, when I heard the news and then learned more about it, of course I'm sad, right? Because, you know, we weren't the best of friends, but we, we hung out every now and then and certainly knew each other. Sure. Uh, you know, um, but the, the thing I came to understand is the guy I knew with that dis- disease that he had would have done what he did because Robin Williams, when he said hello to you, it was with his whole body. This guy couldn't like, this guy couldn't literally couldn't say hello. He couldn't just go up to someone and go, hello. Hello, Mr. Scheffler. You know, it was like, he was very, it was, he was nothing but that energy. And not, you know, having a disconnect between his mind and his ability to control himself physically. You know, if there's no way out of that, that guy I knew couldn't, those, those two things couldn't coexist. Yeah. Sad as it is. It's super sad. That might've been the heaviest, like celebrity passing, if you will, that I think I've, that we've witnessed. That was a rough year. I want to say earlier that year, Philip Seymour Hoffman passed. And everybody everybody was like, boo, shocked by that with the overdose deal. And then when the Robin thing happened, it was like, wow, it was yeah, like crazy, yeah. dude. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I heard it, but, but, you know, it's one of those things that I heard, but didn't hear. Right. Like I thought it might've been a mispronunciation. It might've been like Robbie Williams, some English yeah. musician. Right. <laughs> but no. It's crazy. So anyway, let's move on to something more. Uh, yeah. Have you ever met Rodney Dangerfield by any chance? I, I did not, I didn't really know him, yeah. know him, but I, I did meet him several times. Like I was in the same place. Yeah. I love Rodney. Rodney was hysterical. <laughs> so one of the best, again, my favorite gimmicks of all time, the no respect gimmick, you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Look so, how it worked. So how did you come? Do. Yeah. How, so how did, did you work? come to be involved with the last house on the left film? Well, as I mentioned, I had, a manager in the management, yeah, yeah. And so one day I, I walked into his office and uh, he said, um, I have a movie audition for you, young man. That's how Dick spoke, he was, he was very theatrical, right? He said, I have a movie audition. He handed me a piece of paper, he said, Go to this address, go in the office, you'll see one of two guys or both. One whose name is West, the other is Sean. I don't know their last names. <laughs> <laughs> tell them I sent you so I go I do it I meet West tall skinny blonde haired hippie looking guy and Sean short you know stocky mustache executive it was like a 
they looked like the visual uh, creative and business standing next to each other. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. And and dream sequencing, and uh, they said, "Okay, thank you very much." Being I walked back to Dick's office, and by the time I had gotten back, they had already called and said I, I was the one they wanted for Junior. And then, you know, a few weeks later, we started. And that was that. You know, Last House on the Left, you know, whenever you we, that move, that's a wild movie. I love that film. It's uh, very dark and deranged, you know what I mean? Whenever uh, in conversation, you know, people throw around the the term like dangerous films a lot. And I say there's really only two dangerous films, in my opinion. It's, of course, Last House on the Left and A Clockwork Orange. You know what I mean? Because those two films, I feel like if the wrong person watched them too much, something bad might happen. They're that they're that kind of crazy, but they're masterful filmmaking. You know what I mean? Like Wes Craven was a psycho going to school to be a psychologist. So, like, the psychological horror is heavy in Last House. I'll, uh, I'll tell you some interesting news about Last House. Yeah. Um, first of all, I don't know if you guys know this, but the money to make Last House came from Boston. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. A company called Hallmark Releasing funded it. Um, they used to own a bunch of drive-ins in the area. So, I told you guys that I was out of the country. I was, I was in... Uh, a little town right outside of Bogota, Colombia, for 10 weeks at my wife's family's place. So I get a, a Facebook message from a friend of mine with a link to an upcoming exhibition at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. So I click on the link, and it's a, a, a page that's promoting a cinema exhibition that they're doing uh, about films that have a visceral effect on the human body, mm. right? That not only get you psychologically, but make you have physical reactions. They were screening six films from all over the world in all eras. And one of them was Last House on the Left. For sure. I, I showed it to my wife and I said, don't fuck with me anymore. I'm, I'm now art. Yeah. <laughs> and she said, okay, I will put a frame around your ass and hang you in the living room. <laughs> uh, no, but that, so, so I, I say this to you because it's 50 years later, because it just had the 50th anniversary, right? In yeah. August, the release. David Hess, Fred Lincoln, and I, and the rest of the cast and crew saw it at a cast and crew screening about a month before it was uh, going to be released originally back, back then. And David and Freddie and I walked out of the screening, looked at each other and, and basically said, you know, it was great. We all met. We're going to be friends forever. And we were right. And, and but no one's ever going to come and see this piece of shit, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it, it got released. I'll tell you, Sean got, an, I think, made originally like 30 prints or something, some ridiculously low number. And he gave them to Hallmark, and Hallmark started showing them in their drive-ins, right? Yeah. And they, they had some, you know, equation where 
if they made this movie for X amount of dollars, if they showed it in their movie, you know, and they, they had their own, they were self-distributing so they could get their money back, right? Yeah. And, and so all of a sudden, like Roger Ebert, like a little after the film is released, Roger Ebert writes a three and a half out of four star review in the Chicago Sun-Times about Last House. And the next day I walk into Sean's office and he's running around like a lunatic trying to figure out where he's going to get a thousand prints that he has to deliver in like three days or something. <laughs> and that's what did it. It was Roger Ebert's review of the film that took it out of the drive-ins and put it into mainstream theaters. I mean, posters of us were, were just suddenly papered all over New York City. Mm. Yeah. David Hess couldn't go anywhere without people staring at him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I was right there with him, you know. So it was trippy times, man. It was trippy times. You know, Siskel and Ebert giving you, that doesn't always work out to that, to that, you know. The no, not, Sis that. not Siskel and Ebert. Just Rob, that, Siskel and Ebert didn't exist at this time. Roger Ebert was the film critic for the Chicago, the number one film oh. critic in the country. And the, the critic, film critic for the Chicago Sun-Times. No, this is long before Siskel and Ebert. This is oh. in uh, 1972. I wonder if Ebert knew that he had the power that, like, that his words saying, it's kind of like the rock and roll thing, where it's like you put the parental advisory sticker on it, and then the kids want to hear it more to see what the fuss is about. You know what I mean? I wonder, yeah. if, he, I wonder if he knew that, that his words would have the power like that, or if he was just, you know you know, giving his opinion type deal. I'm sure I wasn't trying to help the film, but you know what I mean? Like I want to no, he was just writing, yeah. he, he was, he was just writing his honest review. Yeah. You know, it was somehow he got it. He came across the film. He watched it and this is his reaction. Yeah. I don't know. It changed my life. Was it big? Did it get it? Once it hit theaters, was it, was it a big deal? And I know a lot of films, it takes years before they become cult. You know what I mean? No, what happened? What, here, here's what happened. He writes the review. The film breaks wide. I think like a thousand theaters. And but Jeremy says longer, but I think around two weeks, it was uh, either the number one film in the country or high up in the top 10. Wow. Oh, yeah. It was fucking un it was un unbelievable. That's like... Crazy. I had no idea it was at number one. That's crazy. That is crazy. I she Jeremy says it's number one. I don't recall that. Yeah. But I do recall I do recall for about two weeks top ten for sure. Even entering even entering like that realm with a movie that dark, that horrifically dark, you know what I mean, is crazy. Well just not only dark but obscure. You know, yeah. there was no there was no independent film scene then. It was right. it was all studio run, you know. Uh, to have a film like this break through that particular membrane was uh, amazing. Yeah. It was Wes's first film, I believe. It, uh, uh, you believe correctly. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I'm glad to hear that. That You know, once it, when it was popping, you got, you were, I know you said you and David Hess were catching some eyeballs because, uh, oh. was... <laughs> let me take, so, so, um, the the uh, publicity company learns that I'm from Pittsburgh, so uh, and Last House is about to open in Pittsburgh at a big theater downtown, right? So they asked me if I would like to go back and do some publicity. So I said, "Hell yeah!" 
so they, they, they send me back there and I hook up with my dad who, you know, also sort of served, served as my airsats, uh, uh, press agent. And for about four or five days, I do, uh, uh, local TV and print interviews and, you know, whatever you, the, the, the normal that you would imagine, you know, so I was getting this window into like, wow, this is like what movie star shit is yeah. like. Right. So, <laughs> so, in, you know, and needless to say, I was really tripping out on that. Uh, and an interesting byproduct of all, all of this stuff was that uh, uh, three or four girls from my high school graduating class who a scant three years earlier wouldn't give me the time of day yeah. were suddenly offering me a whole lot more than the time of day. <laughs> and, and I... I remember being with one of them and kind of like being in the moment and being out of the moment simultaneously. And the part that was in the moment was like really enjoying himself. And the part that was out of the moment was having this kind of rabbinical objective philosophical uh, moments. And I, I remember saying to myself, yes, sir, you have made an excellent career choice. And, <laughs> and <laughs> I said, and they, wow. This is like fucking amazing. You know, <laughs> this is like, here it is. Yeah. Okay. Here it is. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that lasted, uh, that, that high lasted, uh, I'm going to say maybe three weeks. Yeah. Right. And, and I'm back to being an out of work actor yeah. in New York. You, you, I know you crossed over and you started writing a lot for uh, television. Yeah, I did. I did. And, and what happened was I, I, you know, I went to auditions for a while, you know, for a year, a couple of years, and, uh, you know, did odd jobs and shit, you know, and survived. Then uh, I, I got real tired of it. I started like thinking about those days when, you know, women were going crazy just because I was in the room for 10 minutes. Right. Yeah. And uh, however long it lasted. Right. So, so um, I'm at a party one night in New York and I see a guy who uh, doesn't look any different than me, you know, in his own way, just kind of average looking. Uh, and he's just talking to this gorgeous fucking actress, model looking woman, you know, just like this hot fucking woman. And she, I could tell by her eyes that she was, whatever he was saying, she was wrapped up in it. Yeah. So I, I kind of moved closer to them. And I heard this guy and he was saying, yes, well, I've just finished the first act of, of the screenplay. And, uh, you know, and I got to get on it because I have an agent in, on the coast and uh, he's waiting for it. Like four studios or, you know, I, I can't really talk about it, but so I'm, I'm, I got to do a second act plot twist and I'm having, I'll figure. And this girl was like, you know, wow. So I thought to my, I thought to myself, I could do that. I could, I could tell girls I'm a writer. I don't have to do that. I just make shit up. Right. So I went out, I, I went out and I bought a bunch of books on, on uh, writing, television writing and screenwriting. Right. And I, I learned the language, right? I learned the nomenclature, you know, like act one, act two, climax, plot, plot twist, underlying narrative, you know, fade in, fade out. I got, I just got it down. 
And I started going around to parties and wherever I was. And if I, anytime I saw a woman I was like halfway attracted to, I was a writer. Right? <laughs> and, 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 you know, as one can imagine, the more I did it, the better it got. Right. And the, the more I did it, the more it became like a routine. Like I knew where everything was, knew where the laughs were. I knew, you know, so I was in a, a commercial audition for a guy named N. Lee Lacey. Now I'll tell you who he is. You guys know the very famous uh, Mean Joe Green Coca Cola commercial. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. That's so awesome. yes, and Cleo award winning commercial in that tunnel kid with a t- shirt and just Mean Joe Green football player. So so Lee Lacey was the guy who directed that commercial and won a Cleo for it. And he and I had become sort of pals over the last couple of years. I'd auditioned for him a lot. I'd done, I think, two commercials for him. And so we were, we were friends, you know, not, not best friends, but friends. And so I'm, I'm in his waiting room, reception area, doing my thing to some girl and she's like completely captured, right? And, uh, I feel a tap on my shoulder and I turn around and it's Lee. And, and he said to me, Hey, look, I, I, sorry to eavesdrop. I'll be, I'll see you guys in a minute, but, um, I have an agent in Los Angeles. I would love to see that script when you're finished. Uh, uh, I'll get it to him. So I excuse myself from the girl and I say to him, look, man, we're friends. I got to be really honest with you. I'm not writing anything. He said, what do you mean? I said, just do it for girls. <laughs> and he said to me, is it working? I said, Oh yeah, all the time. And he said, well, you're a fucking idiot. And, and I, I said, why? He said, because if you can get girls to take their pants off by what you're saying to them, imagine what you could get if you actually wrote it down on a page and <laughs> gave it to me. And I looked at him and I remember in my, you know, 21 year old naivete said to him, huh, I never really thought of it that way. <laughs> so I ended up taking like, I don't know, two years to write it or a year or something, some ridiculously long number. I wrote a draft of a script. I gave it to him. Never heard anything back, right? Like, and then like three months later, he called me up and said, well, how'd you like to move to LA? I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, I gave it to my agent at William Morris. He read it, didn't think it was a feature, gave it to the TV department, and they just sold it to NBC. And I thought to myself, wow. Yeah. And, and then like, uh, I think two or three weeks later, I relocated to LA and I've been here ever since, you know, been in Southern California ever since. And that was night. That was in the the fall of, I mean, the, uh, uh, February of 1976. I know. Yeah. No, I'm just saying, so my experience has just been wonderful. I know every project is like a child, but do you have, are there any of the TV shows that you liked more than the other ones? You've done a lot of ones that I enjoyed, you know what I mean? Oh, thank you. Um, I think I enjoyed working on Harry and the Hendersons because I got a chance to work on it from the very beginning. Yeah. You know, 
I I always liked, even though a lot of them weren't successful, I always liked getting on shows that weren't so established yet. You know, like I, I wanted to, you know, have some kind of input. And yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it's like, it's like, the t- uh, uh, my, I told you I'm writing a book, right? So I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, it's about my life and my, and, and my journey, but I'm fictionalizing it as I write it so that I can get some objectivity. And if that makes any sense to you guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm kind of like, I've created other ca- alter ego characters for all the real characters and I'm allowing them to have some input rather than me just recollecting. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, uh, it's just, I look back and I go, you know, so anyway, w- w- the title of the book is, uh, uh dumb effing luck. <laughs> and the subtitle is the story of me and my very successful mediocre career. <laughs> and I, I use that because I didn't have like the biggest career in the world. However, I had a real career, right? Yeah. And, and I've had a, an extraordinary amount of fun because the fun's the same. The career might be a little different, but the fun is fundamentally the same. Yeah. Uh, you know, done a bunch of shit and I, I just, it's all just luck. It's just dumb fucking luck. Just right place, right time, shit, just weird shit. They say yeah. that a lot, yeah. Please, uh, I was gonna say it's a you know somebody once told me that um you know success I think it was success is when you get success when uh, preparation meets opportunity. I'm, yeah, I heard that and I, my mind was blown. I heard that like twenty years ago, and I was like, ooh, here you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah that that that's true, and and you know like. I was never, other than how I love to make people laugh, I was never like, com- like really ambitious. Mm-hmm. You know, I dropped out of college in 1969. I was at LSU, went to school with David Duke. Okay. Yeah. yeah famous American civil rights activist. Um, and uh, I had only three goals at that time. Uh, I wanted to smoke as much weed as possible. <laughs> I wanted to. I wanted to sleep with as many different women as possible, <laughs> and I wanted to earn just enough money to afford the weed and the women. Yeah. So I look back now at my life, what I've done, and where I am, and how I live, and I realized that I have greatly exceeded my own expectations. Yeah. I'm happy. Like right, like there. I'm trippy happy. I wake up every day trippy happy. I look at my life, I look at my wife, you know, this gorgeous uh, Colombian woman, many years my my junior. Uh I have three great kids who are who are, you know, not sociopaths and yep. productive members of society. I have a good relationship with my ex-wife. I just I'm into the chill factor, man. You know, just let shit go and just chill. Yeah. I'm always, I always tell this guy over here, I says, you don't understand the legacy while you're building it. You know what I mean? It's when you look That's, back on things. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like I look, none of us in that, you know, seventies comedy scene 
here, the class of 77, the one I belong to, none of us knew the larger import of what we were doing. Yeah. We were, we were just all caught up in the day to day, right? Mm. Uh, and, and often that happens, you know, it, you're just caught up in the day to day and you just don't realize. Yeah. I remember so, you, I remember you once told me you had dinner with Walter Matthau. And I Carol did. O'Connor, Archie Bunk himself. How did that come about? And how was that? Those two guys are legendary. Well, Walter, I, it was the, one of the years that I did the People's Choice Awards, that I was writing the People's Choice Awards. Yeah. And um, I had known Walter uh, at that time for a couple of years. And I, I Walter was... Uh, was a charming, wonderful, and talented, but just a brilliant guy to have a lunch and conversation mm-hmm. with. And I was part of a group of people, so like just like four of us, who uh, um, ha- would have lunch with Walter uh, about three or four times a year for a like maybe a five-year period of time, right? And it, George Slaughter, who created Laughing, was one of them. Uh, my former writing partner, Sam Denoff. Uh, myself and Walter and we would always have lunch at the Beverly Hills Tennis Club which Walter, Walter belonged to it and um, every lunch that we had Walter would show up with uh, like uh, books he would he would bring books for us to read he would walk in and go boys boys listen I just read these books they're wonderful they're wonderful here I bought copies for all of you guys here everyone take a book take a book take a book and um, so we'd have we, we, and mostly when I would have lunch with Walter, I, I was like the youngest person there, right? And yeah. the least experienced. So I just keep my fucking mouth shut. You know, I just listen to these guys talk because it was, you know, like being a fly on a wall in Hollywood history, you know, right. in, a, in a Hollywood history museum. So uh, um, Sam and I tried, had tried to, we're trying to get Walter to do a TV show. We had a deal at Columbia. We created a show, a half hour comedy, uh, that um, the studio and said, if you can get Walter Matthau, we'll give you 22 on the air right now. So of course we were trying, right? And right. Sam knew. So, so we were trying to get it. We had the script and we knew Walter was like a big horse track guy, you mm-hmm. know, racetrack guy. So we got Columbia Pictures to go along with this to hire a racehorse and a jockey in silks and deliver the script to him uh, at his house on horseback. <laughs> so so um, we arrange everything and Sam calls Walter and it goes, Sam says, Hello, Walter? Yes. Sam. Hello, Sam. You going to be home for like an hour or so, kid? Uh, yes, I don't plan on going anywhere. I'm here. All right. Listen, I might be in the neighborhood, so I might stop by. All right. Look forward to seeing you, Sam. So that happens. Sam then picks up the phone, calls Columbia and says, go now. Calls the executive. So we drive out there. We meet the horse and the jockey that they had trailered out there. 
So we get them all set up. He he's going to ride with the the horse and the trailer were like around the bend part where Walter's house couldn't see it, right? So he's just going to ride up, lean down, hit the doorbell. Whoever answers the door, hand him the script. So that part of it just pulls up. Walter and gets it in a bathrobe. He's standing there and he grabs it and he shakes his head and he goes inside. So anyway, we go back to the office and there's a message. Sam's phone lights up. We push the button. He goes, hey, it's Walter. Fucking guys are crazy. Give me a call. So he, he, we call him back. And again, he repeats himself. You guys are crazy. You're out of your fucking minds. And, and we, well, we said, we wanted you to get the script. And we went, yes, I'm going to read. I'm going to read. All right. Now, Walter has the script. So um, we get the job on the People's Choice Awards. And Don Misher, who was the executive producer, said, you guys know Walter Matthau, right? And we said, yeah. So you think you could get him to do X, Y, and Z? Basically conduct a, a Mozart uh, short symphony, right? Some 90-second thing or 10-second thing. So we go to Walter and we say, the, the People's Choice Award wants to book you, but not as a presenter, as an entertainer. Oh, really? What? And we tell him. He said, absolutely, I'll do it. So now we're heroes, right? So we said, what about the script? And he says, I'm working, I'm reading, I'm reading it. So now the show comes and Carol O'Connor is a guest on the show. And at the after party at Chasen's in Beverly Hills, Sam and I are seated at the same table as Walter and Carol, right? Again, what the fuck am I doing here, right? (laughs) (laughs) Jesus fucking Christ. So, so there I am. And to Carol O'Connor's credit, it comes up in conversation that Walter is considering doing a show for us. And to Carol O'Connor's credit, because I had never met him before that night. Yeah. He was telling Walter how wonderful it is doing half hours and how, you know, just how it's the best job in the world. And if the material's good and, you know, uh, and then Walter says, oh, yes, I like the script. I like the script. Uh, And uh, so anyway, so Walter ended up not doing it because he said he didn't want to repeat a character that much. And he said it would interfere with his film career. And that's what he really wanted to do. And we respected that, you know, and we had lunch with him many times after that, you know, he had to respect it because that was his real opinion. He wouldn't kid us. That's, that's what he wanted to do. But that's that's the time I had dinner with those two guys. I like it. Legendary. Leg- you know, in, in the Mount Rushmore of comedy, of television comedy. In- oh, Carol O'Connor? 100%. Yeah. All in yeah. the family. Yeah. In a- All in the family is groundbreaking. You know what I mean? It's it's for politically incorrect for like nowadays times but like at the time that it came out it was like it was crazy it's, it it's, yeah. it's, a, it's a master class in multi-camera sitcom writing yeah I it's love just it. a master class yeah I'm one of my favorite TV shows of all time for sure right there right there with you oh yeah um I know you wrote for the Runaways movie was it uh, Diodato no, Dubidio. 
The BDO, okay. Yes. Yes. How, how yes, was yes, that? Yes. That was fun? Um, it was an interesting experience, let's put it that way. Did I you mean, uh, <laughs> did you work with El Duce at all? I know that he was a part of that. He's a wild no, wild, crazy guy. Yeah, I'd met him a few times, but no, I I wasn't there when Alan shot that scene. Uh the way that happened was uh, the guy who directed it and produced it is, is Alan Sachs. He's a yeah. very famous TV person, right? And Alan and I have been friends forever, and we've worked together quite a bit. And we're, we're good friends even now. We, we talk all the time. So, so um, he called me up one day, and he said – and we have names for each other. Like, I'm Benny, and he's Angel. So we <laughs> – you know. I like that. So, like, my phone rings. I'm in my Hollywood house, and I said, hello. And he goes, Benny, it's Angel. I said, what's up? He said, um, I got a project that's kind of strange, so I thought of you. <laughs> okay, so Alan was a runner, and I was a, run- was a runner until I got hurt. And so he says, you want to go on a run? We'll, we'll go on a long run. I'll tell you about it. So we run from like sunset in Doheny through Beverly Hills all the way, like all the way up to Roxbury and around and down to Santa Monica and up Doheny again. So he tells me a story that a friend of his who owns a post-production house, somebody was editing a film there and they ran out of money and they scrammed and they left him with the negative and it's like I don't know 40% finished and the guy who owns the post-production house wants to know if there's a way to finish it on the cheap so maybe you could have like a whole movie and try to get his money back so I said okay he said you want to take a look at it I said, yeah. So I go to a place in Hollywood, a post-production house. And on a small screen, I watched 40 minutes of Joan Jett and the Runaways doing weird shit out in the country, just like riding around, like not doing anything in particular. It's just so, and it's disjointed and there's no context. and It's just garbage. Yeah. So Alan said to me, what do you think? I said, I don't have an answer for you now because it's, you know, it's not a simple answer. Yeah. So I went home and I thought, and I came up with something. And I said to Alan, I called him, I said, let's go on a run again. So I went, went on another run. And he said, here's my idea. We, gotta, we, 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 we don't have any money to spend. So we have to have one location to do the rest of the film and whatever exterior shots we can grab. And he said, okay, I agree. And I said, why don't we just go with the truth? And he said, what do you mean? I said, why don't we hire one actor to play a lunatic filmmaker who's on the hook to organize crime for a budget on a film that he's never going to finish, and he knows it, and he's scrambling. And Alan said, I like that. I said, yeah, that way we can go to the Joan Jett footage 
and not ever have to put it in context mm. because he's viewing it out of context. And he's trying to make it work. We don't have any obligation to make it work. We only have an obligation to make him work. Yeah. So we pitched that to the guy who owned the post-production house, knowing that he was probably going to have to come up with like, you know, 50, 75,000 to finish it, to do it that way using and using his facility as a primary location. And he agreed. And that's how the video got made. Did it make its money back? I have no idea. <laughs> it's coming to fuck. And I don't say, I don't say that negatively or positively. I, I just factually have no idea. I, I hear you that I'm on the, we're in the independent world. And we even have films that we worked on and we have no idea if they're ever coming out. You know what I mean? So on a bigger scale with bigger money, I you know, I definitely hear you on that. If I was if I was gonna do that, if I was gonna like make a film independently right now, mm-hmm. I would buy like six iPhone Pro 14, 14 Pros with the maximum storage. Mm-hmm. I'd buy a great, you know. Uh, sound recorder or I'd hire some and I'd shoot everything in iPhones. I'd, I'd buy, I'd buy pedestals for them. I'd buy, uh, shit because all that shit exists. Yeah. I wouldn't, yeah, I would just shoot everything in a fucking iPhone. There's no, for somebody who's trying to break through to make a film, they should, they should have a script that can be shot with those. Yeah. And just, and just do that. Just fuck it, you know, because you can you can get this almost the same result. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they look good, look great. Cameras look oh. fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when they do commercials, Apple does commercials, and it says shot on an iPhone. They're not kidding; they can't lie about that. It's, right? It's just shot, shot, and lit by professionals. But that's you know, that's easy to to accomplish. Yeah, but that's that's how I would do. I've actually thought about doing that. Yeah, no, I thought I, about doing. I thought about doing my doing a TV show, shot completely on iPhones. That'd be cool. Yeah, like a multi camera show completely on iPhones. Every time a new iPhone comes out, and right when you go into Boston, they always got a big billboard of a picture that was shot on the new iPhone, so you get a oh good yeah, vibe of what it looks like. Yeah. I I had a question about chaos. Sure. Um. You know, you got to work with Sage Stallone, the late Sage Stallone. What right, was right. what was it like working with him? He seems like a good dude. I think that we would be. He's a, a big horror fan, exploitation he, fan. You know what I mean? I, we would have really fit in. He, listen, yeah. he tracked me down. He heard that I was one of the producers on that film, yeah. right? So one day I'm in my office uh, and I get a call, and the, the, they say Sage Stallone is on the phone. Okay. Hey, how are you? Nice to meet you. Oh, is this Mark? Yeah. I said, this is Sage Stallone. I said, yes, I know. He said, oh, man, this is great. Oh, man, this is great. And he was like a real fan. Yeah. And and uh, he said, uh, you got a part for me in that movie? I said, you want to do a part? And he said, yeah. I said, I'll get you a part. Yeah. So we did. He, he was terrific. He was a sweet kid. I was very sad. When when I heard what happened to him, he, he he was really just the nicest guy. Yeah, I mean, and you you could tell that his father taught him, and he told me also his father taught him 
at a young age how to behave on sets, right? And I'm telling you, he was a gentleman's gentleman, mm. just to everybody, just the sweetest guy. I mean, just really kind. And, you know, we hung out after the film wrapped. We hung out a little bit, you know, always a kind kid, just very sad what happened to him. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's, I didn't really know too much about him till after his passing. I mean, I seen him of course acting and like he's in Rocky five, I believe. And he's in, um, daylight, I think. Um, and, the, and did the best, the most incredible Sylvester Stallone impression you can imagine. I believe it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just, I mean, it, he, he didn't, it wasn't like an impression. He was just channeling his father. Yeah. Right? It was yeah. just, yeah, he used to do that on the set, just crack us up. Yeah. <laughs> he, I know he was like one of like the co-founders of uh, Grindhouse releasing. Yes, which was really yes. cool. You know, a lot of the Fulci and Diodato. He and Bob, I think Bob Murkowski was Bob, involved yep. in that. Yeah, 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 Bob too. Yeah, that was very sad stuff. You know what I mean? And he he loved films. You know what I mean? You see, you know, he, yeah, yeah. He, he he had celluloid blood. This kid, yeah. It's good because you see, like a lot of family might get into it because they know what it can give them. You know what I mean? But he seemed like one of the people that just loved it. Like even if he wasn't Stallone's son, he would still pursue. Yeah, still, you know yeah, what I mean. And the, and and the fact, you know, you got to take into consideration that the the fact that he chose to throw his energy into like down and dirty films, right? As as opposed to like studio bullshit, what you know, like like the Hollywood Hollywood part of it, he was he was a maverick in in you know that fabric, right? He he was he'd rather do grindhouse films and live in that world than uh, the other one, and that 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 always said something to me. He, he makes he makes movies the for passion, thinking of his yeah. passions, not his wallet, which is a beautiful thing. You know what I mean? Well, well, yeah, I mean, again, never had to worry about his wallet, but sure. But you know, you know what I mean, yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, he could have went in the direction of Hollywood, of the big Hollywood deal. He had a good door, foot in the door with it, to a degree, I think. I don't, yeah, I don't know what the, what their dynamic was working-wise and stuff like that, you know what I mean? So I can't really speak on that, but with a, with a name like Stallone, he could have probably went in a different route, you know what I mean? Yeah, of course. But, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, but but a good kid, just just a good kid. Yeah, he's somebody. I think we all would. He would have been a good like me and Alex. I think would have had a lot to talk to him about because we all like the same types of films he was pushing. And yeah, you know, he, he is. A, yeah, he would have been. He would have been a, a very solid guest for your show. And he is a maverick. I mean, people don't know much, you know, people that don't dive deep into the way with that, that grindhouse releasing thing, I don't, you know, it's really huge because a lot of films were brought here for the first time through that, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? For yeah. films and such. Absolutely. Tragic. I know that when Clue, uh, Clue Gulliger passed away not too long ago, I kind of, I, uh, you know, we were, it, the Vic short that they did together, I went back and looked at some of that stuff, you know what I mean? The promo for he, it. He and he and Clue were very, very close. He, yeah. they, they were very good friends. Yeah. So. That stuff. Well, what are you going to do? Alex, do you have any, do you have any final questions? Uh, the only thing is that I was interested in, it looks like you were a writer on the, uh, 
how Bugs Bunny won the West. That is true. And, and you got to work with Mel Blanc, which, yeah. I mean. I, well, I didn't work, I didn't work like in the room with Mel Blanc. You wrote for him. I, I did write stuff that I believe he did, yes. How was he? Was he a good guy? You know, no, I never got a chance to meet him. I'll I'll give you a kind of a blanket statement about, about people out here in the, in the business. 99.9% of them are just normal people with abnormal jobs. Right. And, 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 you know, plus or minus, you know, the, the, the ability to develop quirkiness because things are a time indulgent and, you know, you, you can like get away doing some silly shit more than, than people in a different environment. But mostly everybody I've met along the way, just normal people with abnormal jobs. Yeah. I dig it. We, um, you know, Mark, this was a lot of fun. We appreciate you coming on, giving us your time. Well, yeah, I hope it worked for you. hope you get a show out of it. It was, Of course we will. It was great. We'll promote the book when it comes out if you want to come back on and we'll figure out. We, we'll, we, I think I will, we'll, do the, we'll do the video around book release time type deal. You know what I mean? I will, I will pound every podcast I've ever done when I finish that book and it's out. We'd love to have you back here, man. All right, man. We usually we, I got one last question for you. Sure, sure, sure. We, we got a lot of filmmakers, like I said, authors, comedians, all types of walks to watch the show. And uh, we always like to ask, you know, for the, for the uh, people on the come up, you know, when they find themselves in a tough situation where it just feels like nothing's working for them, or they're in a they're in like a hole on something. Do you have any advice for them of positivity to kind of keep going, or like you know, it's going to get brighter if you hold out type vibe? Okay, first of all. Uh, uh, it doesn't always get brighter if you hold out. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> and that's part of the, the, the pain, yeah. right? Uh, I think for anybody struggling to exist as an artist on any, on any level, what you're basically asking the universe for is, um, uh, give me a pass. Just let me be me and take care of me. Yeah. Okay. So, so because that's people who are artistic, they exist by, you know, by monetizing expressions of, of themselves, right? In various forms, music, comedy, film, whatever. So while many people want that, and I think it's good to encourage talented people, it isn't for everybody. And just because people, somebody wants it, doesn't mean they should have it. Now, I don't mean to kill any, you know, I don't tell anybody to stop. Uh, uh, I tell people that as you move through your life, at certain phases of your life, you know, governed by age, you say to yourself, well, I'm 48 years old. I want to be a television writer, but I live in Des Moines, Iowa still and uh, I've never really written a TV show at some point you got to say to yourself you know maybe it's not going to happen if you really want to do it you know if you really want to do it you have to aim yourself at it you can't just think you want to do it and you know feel the passion of wanting to do it 
you have to take proactive steps and aim yourself at it. Mm. And that means like if you're in the comedy business, you need to live in New York or Los Angeles. And those are the only two places you need to live mm. because you can't get where you want to go from anywhere else. You All you can do is from anywhere else, get to one of those two places because the people who can help you get where you want to go only live in those two places. Right. Right. Like agents and managers and studio executives and network executives, uh, they only live in those places. Mm -hmm. And those are the people you have to connect with so you can get what you want because they're the ones who have it. And, and a lot of people, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of comedians uh, on some websites and whatever who tell me, well, you know, I'm in, I'm in uh, Austin because, you know, Austin's a big comedy scene. And I said, really? Uh, any studios uh, headquartered in Austin? No. Any major talent agencies headquartered in Austin? No. Any major networks, including the streamers headquartered in Austin? No. I said, then Austin is, is a minor league city. And if you think you can make it in the major leagues, pack a bag and get the fuck out there. Right. And then that's, that's the truth. You know, it's just the truth. It is. It is. I mean, you know, uh, uh, that's, that's, it's just the truth. It's, it was the truth when I started and it's the truth now. Yeah. So I mean, Austin, Austin has Joe Rogan. I think that's their biggest comedy thing going. He's got all his Joe friends. Rogan is Joe Rogan. For, for whatever he is, he's just a guy. He's not right. an industry, yeah. right? He's not like you know. No, no one, no one has a career because Joe Rogan likes them, right? Right. True. It's true. It, and I mean, not no disrespect to him, but right. that's just in in the hierarchy of the industry. Yeah. That's that's a, a truthful statement. Yeah. Yeah. I so I, my 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 advice to people is to develop your craft, mm-hmm. right? If you're a comedian. Develop material, because that's what it's all about. Develop your point of view. You know, try to have a point of view that's so unique that you could write jokes that only you could do. That you and you perform. So develop that and then move to Los Angeles or New York. Because it's all, you know, it's all like jerk off until you get there. It is. It's true. I'm not kidding you. Jay Leno from Boston. Used to drive from, you know, used to drive from Boston to, to New York to do gigs and then drive back. Yeah. And then Jay, Jay moved to L.A. That's the thing. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, Boston was known for like, we had a lot of comedians come here to cut their teeth, you know, like Rogan, Bill Burr. Yeah. Patrice O'Neill, stuff like that. Um, and then they go to the bigger stage, of course, which is like you say, New York or California. That's the hub of all of it. <clears throat> that's it. Yeah. That's that's it. That's the only reason. Yeah. I mean, that, those are the only two places. And every other excuse that I've heard from people, and I've heard a, a, a shitload of them, it all boils down to they just don't have, don't really know if they could do it. And uh, they have obligations. And I totally understand that. Right? Yeah. But if you're really meant to do it, you find a way. Yeah. I, I agree with that. It's, and it's tough. It's hard. It's not easy. You know, it's challenging. It's challenging for you, for yourself. It's challenging for your family. It's, cha- I mean, it's like a zillion different challenges. You just, 
I don't know. Like, you do it. You just do it. And there's even more. It's like there's more people doing it now. Like you said <clears throat> earlier in the show on the on the the, the the names on the comedy story. So for for all the names that are up there, there's 300 that aren't up there. It's probably like for all the names that are, there's 3 million now that <clears throat> yeah. out, out there trying that aren't doing You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. it, there's the age old thing of like, like I have, a, I have some friends who are uh, road comics, right? And they're out there making good money. Yeah. They're, they're out there doing shows and making good money and they're good. Mm-hmm. But that's not a career. That's a job. Right. Yeah. You got to have, a, you, you got to have a career and a career is about, you know, being here and doing things and being very strategic and, um, you know, I don't know. It's, 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 it is different. I give it that, but it's basically the same in that talent survives, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's perseverance and combination of actual talent and perseverance. Uh, but you got to be in the game to play the game. Yeah. You can't play the game sitting in the stands. You got to be on the field. Yeah. Well, that's great advice. I dig that. Yeah. yeah. Well, Mark, thank you again for being on the show. Thank you for having me. I hope I, my, my uh, center of attention uh, flaw in my character didn't bore you guys to death. <laughs> You're more interesting than we are, so don't worry. Uh, well, well, when, the, when, the book, when the book comes out, you're always welcome back on the show. We'd love to promote it and, you know, the whole deal, you know. Okay. All, All right. right. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me again. You guys have a great sun- rest of your Sunday. You too. Thank you very much. Talk soon. Okay. So, yeah, this was good times. If anybody out there has never seen Last House on the Left, you got to check the flick out. It's good for you. Not good for your mind. It's good for your movie knowledge, you know, to put it in your archives. Don't watch it too much. You know what I mean? Yeah, Wes Craven, uh, fantastic. You know, the psychology of the horror in those first couple films is what make them you know, iconic, you know, that last house, iconic nightmare on Elm street, quite possibly, at least for the time, for a while was like the biggest horror movie there ever was. Um, you know what I mean? Yeah. Also that hills have eyes is pretty iconic for what it is way better than part two, way better than part two, part two is tough times, but number one, fantastic. The reboot, the Aja reboot, of the Hills Have Eyes is actually pretty good too, I will say. I recommend. But yeah, for sure. Everybody get out there and support Mark. You know what I mean? And all his endeavors. The book will be coming out soon. Uh, but if you're catching this video, it's, the book is probably out. And uh, you should be going to buy it on the Amazon or wherever it's being sold. We will have a link in the old description if it is out to purchase at the time of this video. You want to say anything in closing? Uh, no, uh, just that it was great talking to him. He uh, is a very interesting and fun guy, and uh, learned a lot of in- and, and, and learned a lot of interesting things. And he had a lot of great points that he brought up about you know dealing with uh, you know the uh, the industry itself. It was a great discussion. I had a lot of fun, and uh, we'll definitely have him on in the future. So, it's your pals, Maddie and Alex, signing off from the Boombastic cast.
Peace. Yeah.